One of the great challenges of pursuing a career in filmmaking or just creating video content in general is that the tools are constantly evolving and there's a constant need for more education and access to more tools. The problem is that it's expensive, both in time and money. That is why we at No Film School are extremely excited about something called the five-day deal. The five-day deal offers a video creator's bundle that has over $2,000 worth of courses, assets, and tools for only $98, and it only lasts five days. It does sound too good to be true, but listen, even if there's only one course in there that ends up being of value to you, it's still worth the price of $98. We're excited about it, not just because it's such a great value play, but also because 10% of every purchase of the five-day deal goes to legitimate charities that are helping people in need of all kinds across all of the world. So for us, it's a win-win. We truly believe in their mission statement. And we also think it's a great way for you to have an added library of courses, tools, assets, et cetera, available to you forever. Because once you download it, it's yours. So how do you get this great thing? Head over to nofilmschool.com forward slash five day deal 2022. That's nofilmschool.com forward slash five day deal 2022. And all the information is listed on that page. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of June 10th, 2022. I'm Charles Hayne, filmmaker. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. I'm here with filmmaker Gigi Hawkins. Hey there. And this week, in honor of learning a lot about contracts with Elon Musk deciding not to buy Twitter, we're going to be talking about what filmmakers need to understand about the general concept of contracts. We're going to be talking a little bit in tech news about Apple having a new MacBook Air because that is a very popular laptop with a lot of writers. And we're going to be wrapping that up with a conversation about making your first short film. We have an Asno Film School from a 15-year-old, which is punk rock as hell. I love uh, that. Making, yeah, making their first short, wanting to know about microphone and wanting to know about getting it out to the world, which are sort of two very separate topics. But we'll talk about that more this week on the No Film School podcast. first topic this week is about contracts and who owns what by default in media and how all of that works. And so let's kick it off by talking about the big contract news in the news right now, which is Elon Musk pretended to want to buy Twitter. It was obvious to most people he was never going to buy Twitter, but he likes a news cycle that Elon Musk. So he pretended to want to buy Twitter and even signed a contract to that effect that had like a, a billion dollar contract breaking fee. So like if he didn't finish buying Twitter, he would owe a billion dollars. However, one of the truest things about contracts, there's two things I always like to remember about contracts. The first is that a contract is only useful if you have the lawyers to enforce it. So like the vast majority of contracts, you can't call the cops on someone about breaking it. You have to have your legal team drag it into court. And so contracts tends to benefit the wealthier, richer, more powerful party. Because even what? if it is written to the benefit of the weaker party <laughs> without the lawyers to enforce it, it doesn't really matter. The flip side of that about contracts is that contracts are a mind game 
in which people tend to act in accordance with the contract because we feel like a social obligation and pressure to do so. So if you sign a contract with someone, they are more likely to act in accordance with the contract because most people sort of want to be good people and get along in society. The reason why this is relevant to the Elon Musk news is because clearly Elon Musk doesn't give a shit about operating in society and is going to throw an army of lawyers out of getting out of the contract and I guarantee will not be forced to pay the billion dollar fine and will get out of the contract that he just did for the news cycle. And the reason why it's relevant for filmmakers is to remember that, you know, most of the time you're doing contracts, you're doing contracts with people and you're hoping that they're going to abide by them because they also want to be good people and abide by contracts. However, know that there are people out there who just won't. I've definitely signed contracts with people and then they just didn't abide by them. And then stuff ended up in court because I was like, oh, well, you know, I was young and naive and in my twenties and I was like, oh, well, we have a contract. And like, that doesn't, to some people that means a lot. And to some people that means nothing. And that's sort of a good thing to think about the specific issue that brought up this contract conversation. And this is some stuff that George will have some thoughts about is where ownership by default lies because it's really simple like if i go write a book or let's make it simpler i go write a poem i own the copyright to that poem i wrote it i'm the author authors by default own the copyright to their work they have to specifically sell it in writing often in a contract to a publisher or to like a refrigerator magnet company or a t-shirt company or whatever in order to give away their rights. And usually you limit that giveaway. In film, it is much more complicated because there's not a clear definition of like who is the author of a film. But what you will often end up doing is you will sign a contract. Like if you go do a commercial or a music video or even like a work for hire work as a director, you will often sign a contract that specifically states you are doing it as work for hire. And you are giving up all of your authorship rights to the work you are created because you're doing it as work for hire. And that phrase work for hire shows up in contracts a lot. If you're on a project and there's no clarity, like no one mm -hmm. ever makes you sign a contract, giving it up as work for hire. Like there's this default assumption that like whoever paid for it owns it, but like there's not actually clear case law on that. Like you could also make the argument that like the director could also make an argument that they have authorial ownership of the footage. So it it's like gets messy and complicated. I've been in both situations. Like I have worked on my own projects that I've directed where I've worked with SAG and it's been an entire process of like having people sign the work for hire. But when I moved to LA, I found myself doing a lot of more sketchy work. And by sketchy, I mean sketch comedy where a lot <laughs> <laughs> and maybe sketchy because there wasn't a contract, but uh, we, it, when it I moved to LA, I found myself doing more sketchy work. <laughs> Not the first time, time or the last time that it's been said. That's going to be the name of the, of the episode. I'm sorry. <laughs> sketchy work. Um, when I no, when I moved to LA. Sorry. <laughs> Um, well, and, and it was sort of in this ethos of let's just make things, let's go out and, and do it. And I think like it, this unwritten thing of working together in good faith, which is also something that often you put in a contract. But the other day I was working on a project that I directed, I directed it for free. Somebody paid for the production. Uh, I ended up throwing money in for post. And the person who paid for the production 
offhandedly mentioned, oh, you're editing the footage that I own. And I was like, whoa, wait, do you own the footage? Because I have copies of it. And also, did we sign a contract that I'm aware of and then, or not aware of? And it turns out like there's no contract. And it made, it got me thinking like, when do you start to, you know, put ink to paper, especially when you're in this sort of like early phase of your career? And when do things move from like friends getting together, making something and to this point where you're like, okay, and how are we going to break this down when, you know, in theory, there's really, we're not going to make money on this short film. I can guarantee that. Um, so yeah, I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on like, Man. one, how do you handle that situation? And two, like, especially after the fact, we've already shot it, we're already editing it. I don't yeah. think there's going to be a contentious thing, but uh, my radar went off. That was like, what did I not, what box did I not check here as a creator? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So I yeah. do a deal memo on everything. And so a little context on what a deal memo is versus a contract. Contracts involve lawyers. So as soon as you say the word contract, you are saying my lawyers and your lawyers are both going to review this and it's going to cost us both money. And it's also going to slow things down. So I always say contracts are great for anything that's like more than 10% of your yearly billing or there's liability involved. Like you could be liable if, if a fire breaks out on set or whatever, or if there's like residuals, I think it's worth paying your lawyer to do the contract. But in the 60s, uh, studios would want to get going on movies fast. They'd want to like just make a thing happen. And so they would start directors and, and put them on salary before finishing their contracts. And so the Directors Guild, led by Elliot Silverstein, got together and was like, hey, it's a little weird that we start work without a contract. Could we, could we do a thing called a deal memo that we both sign where we just like outline uh -oh. the terms yeah, so we understand stuff? And the producer said no. And the director said, all right, well, when you're on a call with us and you're hiring us, do you take notes? Like, do you take notes of like how many weeks the shoot's going to be and like what we're going to get paid and stuff? And the producer's like, yeah, we, you know, our secretary took notes. And the Directors Guild said, can we just sign those notes and call it a deal memo? And that's where the deal memo, which is now in all sorts of industries, like it was invented by the DGA in the 60s. And that's it is so intended cool. to be a quick and fast, dirty, like, here's the basic outline of what we are doing together. No lawyers, no whatever, like, here is what we are agreeing to. And for anything that's like less than 10% of my yearly billing or anything that's like, I have good faith, like we're all in this as buds and like we're all working together. I always recommend doing a deal memo on goddamn everything. 
And I especially recommend doing a deal memo if there is any potential IP. Like, you know, it's very rare that a random little short you shoot with your friends is going to turn into It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. But let's not forget, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia started as a little short shot by some friends in their living room. So like, it's incredibly rare that will happen. But if that did happen, if your little sketch did have the roots of the longest running live action TV show in history in it, wouldn't it be better that you had a deal memo laying out ahead of time, like who did what and what our expectations are and, and who created what and that kind of thing. And so like, I just do a deal memo on everything. You, you type it up, you make it a PDF and I'll send it through on an email and I'll say response to this email counts as agreement to this deal memo. We don't even need to sign it. I, then I don't do stuff if people won't even respond to that email. Cause it's also like for me, such a flag. Like if someone doesn't even respond to that email, I'm like, okay, like then you're not someone that I want to work with. Like if you're not in a place where you're going to sit down and read the deal memo and be like, yeah, all right, I get it. This all makes sense to me. Then, then we're probably not going to be good collaborators. So that's I what I personally recommend. Go ahead. Yeah. I have a few thoughts. I want to go back to a couple things. One is that if Elon Musk did pay the $1 billion, <laughs> he'd still have like $210 billion. So I don't think it's going to matter one way or another for him. The other thing. That's so annoying. Remember, though, but, <laughs> that, that money is not liquid money. That right. money no, is. No, no, no. Yeah. Like might, that stock who knows? You might Tesla. have like 10 bucks in cash. You're right. Yeah. Like, we, yeah. like, like, I don't know what. he's. I, he lost apparently like $50 billion when, you know, during this Twitter, whatever. I, yeah. No, you're right. Good point. He doesn't. He doesn't. He's not Scrooge McDuck with the money bin or, you know, something like that. But the other thing was when you said the things to remember about contracts and the thought that came to my mind that you've covered, but that I always love and it's a movie podcast. So it's the famous Sam Goldwyn quote, verbal contract is not worth the paper it's written on. And I always, I, I've always liked that one. Apparently there is, you know, you can have an oral agreement or contract and it, and it can be worth something. But I feel as we talk about the area you're in or or that when many of us are in and have been in where there's sort of a unclear line as to what is officially agreed upon when and where i always took that verbal contract not worth the paper it's written on personal like to to heart as a producer because i i kind of like activated an aspect of my mind that was like hey everything needs to be written down and locked in and if it isn't, the potential, like I, I trained myself to be frightened of the potential catastrophes around the corner, which by the way, as Charles points out, even with contracts and deal memos are, are totally plausible. Like nightmares mm -hmm. can come true regardless of what's written in a contract, partly because of how much money or power people have or who really wants to go to court or can you really afford to go to court or whatever. But I have often brought up on the podcast an incident where, or, or indie feature I did where we had a bunch of agreements with, well, maybe I haven't brought it this up. I don't know. I can't remember things well anymore. But what I know, this story that happened to me. Another reason project, to have a contract. Remember <laughs> no, a diary and a contract. No, we, yes. we had a film. We had an indie film. We had a bunch of SAG actors. We had a number who, of them who had um, legit you know, interest in, you know, hey, I'll do the 
ULB, whatever that was at the time, the SAG ultra low budget agreement. They did the timesheets, et cetera, et cetera. But part of it was negotiating some kind of points, which probably would never happen, but it needed to be negotiated and written down. We put an executive producer in charge of of, of like contracts and when the film was finished and we did in fact get distribution and we were doing all that, you know, there's a lot of deliverables. When we think of deliverables, we often think of like, oh, the finished, you know, the post-production deliverables. There's a lot of deliverables that have to do with like legal crap, like documentation and stuff like that. And there's a lot of things you, you need. And even if a distributor tells you, especially in the age of streaming, they may tell you, you don't need that. We're fine. But, but they're fine because maybe they're protected by their own errors and emissions insurance. You might not be the producer or the director or the filmmaker. So you have to get a lawyer. You have to be careful. And I found throughout that process that, oh, that executive producer didn't actually get a contract. It was just a series of emails where they agreed. Now, as Charles pointed out, that probably is enough. But I was like, I'm not comfortable going into battle with that as my body armor. Like, it just freaked me out. Like, I felt like, so I went ahead and I got copies of all the contracts again and re-signed and put it in writing and made it all as official as possible because that's kind of the way my producer brain worked. And um, it's also why I don't like producing. But I think, my point of my story and my, my rant here is just that I think if you have any inkling of intent to try to sell or hit the marketplace or whatever. You really want to have contracts and you want them to be as legit as you can get them. Meaning don't just do it yourself or download a boilerplate. But hey, if that's what you got, if that's all you can do, then that's what you should do. But because, you know, say say you release your film and and somebody comes along and i mean there's there's multiple ends to every what if so there's no reason to get into it cuz maybe you released your film it makes a ton of money you have a new agent at caa and when somebody comes after you because you didn't get a release for them and they're in the background of a shop for too long then caa is like don't worry about that you got lawyers you don't have to worry about that but there's another version of that story where you don't have that and it becomes a problem and blah 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 so I'm a big believer in get contracts and get good ones. I also know of at least one production. I mean, I know of one production that missed out on distribution because of a shitty wig. But I also know of at least one production I've known in my life that missed out on distribution opportunities because their paperwork was such shit. And distributors that were like previously interested. Yeah, that like when sucks. doing their yeah, when uh, doing their due diligence was like, actually, no. Yeah, and like, people you know. think they don't have to be careful, and they do. And that my fear was always not just that, what you're talking about, which is very much a legitimate fear. But I would always go a step further in my own, like, psychosis, and I would think, like, well, what if we go to jail? You know, like, what if we, what if we do something bad right. by accident, and we don't have those things? Because you have to, you know, there's a, there's... You never know. Like someone could trip over an extension cable walking by your set. I don't know. Yeah. So I, the answer is if there's any potential for future upside distribution, like you're making an indie feature, you're making an indie pilot. If there's any potential for anything to be anything real, contracts with lawyers. If you are doing something with your buddies and you're figuring it out, deal memos at bare minimum. And talk about ownership. Talk about money. Talk about all that stuff. Put it in paper. And life will just be easier 
and you'll be chiller and there won't be like awkward moments. I have to say, I also have never met this person, but like, it's a little weird for someone to be like footage that I own. Like that's like if you're, you're like at a party (laughs) at someone's house and they're like, welcome to the party at the house that I own. And you're like, yeah, okay. You're reminding me you own this house. That's nice. I'm glad you own a house. So, so good for you. Like, like, it was like, it's kind of like this person was saying to you, don't get any ideas now. I, <laughs> like, yeah, it, which is very interesting information to gather. I found yeah. a lot of the projects that I've been working on. And I, this is advice that James Kim, who's a, a scripted podcast creator, gave me. He's like, I was like, how do you find the collaborators that you can like trust and collaborate with in a in a way that feels psychologically safe? And he said, only bring people to work on your babies who you've worked with before. You have to have this trial period, which is interesting because I'd assume that these sort of like early stage sketches would be that sort of sussing out phase. And it is, and it's great. And I'm learning and I get to collaborate with so many awesome, brilliant, fun, talented people. And then every now and then I'll be like, oh, interesting. And I'm putting that in my back pocket for when, you know, the bigger things come along. And, and I do think in uh, coming back to actually what we were talking about last week, this idea of talking through some of these bigger picture things up front, make it so much easier. Like it's so much easier to talk about, you know, where you're comfortable with when it comes to government funding, as we talked about last week, before there's money in the bank or like where you draw the line. So I think it's something that I am paying more attention to these days. And I am understanding the value in having these conversations up front. And it, it feels like ultimately it's it's helping, it, res- it lets you respect the work in the long run because it doesn't become, if you're having these hard conversations up front, or even just like this idea of sending a deal memo email where you responding to this is an agreement and we don't have to sign things. It, it just feels like you're crossing your T's and dotting your I's and then you can focus on the project. Because we don't want to be like stressing about this when we're working on something we're super excited about. Yeah, you want to put it all behind you so you can focus and enjoy the work and not stress about like, uh-oh, we didn't, you know, this and that. And am I going to get screwed by this person? And, you know, those sorts of things, for sure. One of my biggest flags is when people don't want to paper stuff. Is every once in a while, like one collaborator in a hundred doesn't want to paper stuff because they're like, nervous and don't understand it and i just need to sit down with them and like have a meeting and we go through all the terms together and they're like oh i get it and they're like just intimidated by contracts but 99 times out of 100 when people don't want to paper it it's a bad sign because all papering things does is it helps you prevent future conflict you talk about it all it forces you to put your expectations and assumptions on the table it would have forced this person to say aloud before you shot and then all own the footage and you would have been like well is that actually how it works And then you would have done some research, you would have talked to friends, and you would have put it on paper ahead of time. And maybe that's what you would have decided, but it would have felt like a decision you would have been okay with. And so like papering forces us to articulate our expectations in a way that is like a very useful practice, even Mm -hmm. if the paper never comes out again. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, moving forward in addressing it with this person, you know, is it a matter of, okay, this is much, this is the amount that you put into this project. And if it becomes something else, like 
Do you want us to buy it back from you? You know, is, are we looking at a revenue share? I'm wondering, like, is there, is it worth having a conversation now at this point? Or do we just sort of let it be and finish the project? It kind of. I mean, now that it's almost done, do you think, oh shit, this is a TV show? I think I'm very excited about it. I'm very excited about it. I don't think maybe have that conversation. Yeah. But maybe it's a feature. I could see it being a scene for a feature or a proof of concept for a feature. Okay. Well, yeah, maybe a paper. Get the contract now. Get the contract now. Paper. Oh, lawyer. Paper after the fact. (laughs) There is such a thing as a post nup. Ah. The post nup. The post nup. Which is usually a little less messy than the prenup, from what I hear. I've done neither, but that's what I hear. Well, thank you, guys. Oh, a pleasure. Moving on to some tech news. This is a quickie in tech news. So Apple has dropped a new processor, the M2, and they dropped it first in the MacBook Air. Why is it a quickie? So, you know, Apple news tends to be big news around here because we all tend to work on Mac still to this day. I have a MacBook Pro in my office, a MacBook, uh, a year older MacBook Pro at home, and 99% of my work gets done on that or occasionally on a Mac Studio. Like, they're great. The MacBook Air, however, is more popular with writers than it is with filmmakers. And the reason why is you don't need the extra power of the MacBook Pro often. But man, when you need it, it's really nice that it's there. So like you you go out and you do that commercial shoot. and You've got to turn around your dailies really fast. You've got to do an overnight render. It's really nice to have more power in the Pro. Or like you're doing your feature film and you're doing your export and the Sundance deadlines in four hours. And like, it's really nice if the, if the export takes half an hour instead of two hours. And so that's why most filmmakers, I recommend they stick with the pro. The MacBook Air is getting incredibly powerful. It's like shockingly powerful compared to what it used to be. But if you're a filmmaker and you're excited about the new M2 processor architecture, I would like drag your feet because there'll be a new pro in the fall, probably in time for school. And I would just wait and get the pro if you're a filmmaker. If you're 100% a writer, if you're like, I don't even like going to set, I will show up on set, but I'll be grumpy, and I never deal with footage, and I will never be doing an export, then yeah, get the air. The air rocks. And then last up this week, we have an Ask No Film School that I have to bring back up, which is Evan Dawson says, I'm a young filmmaker, and I'm going to make my first live-action short in a few weeks. I took my time writing the scripts, and I really can't wait to share it with the world. Through friends, I've got a great location. It's my first project, and I don't know how to get it out to the public. Also, as I'm filming with my phone, I don't know what microphone to purchase that is suitable for my device. What advice can you give me? So the first thing I would say is, I don't actually really know what microphone is going to be best recording to your phone, because I still usually recommend people do dual system sound, because it's less about mic compatibility with your phone, and it's more about mic placement. So like what I would do if I were you, the number one thing. Can you break down dual system sound real quick? Oh, sure. So dual system. So like on a modern video camera, you can have sound that records alongside picture. So like I'm holding the camera in my hand and it's got a microphone on top and sound and picture record together. However, we still tend to do something called dual system where it records to a separate audio recorder for a bunch of reasons. Usually there's like better audio preamps and better mixing tools and yada, yada. That's all good stuff. But the biggest thing that people should remember about it is that Mike, good sound is less about your microphone. I mean, your microphone matters, but it's more about placement. And the problem is, is if you're shooting with your camera 
or your phone and you just mount a microphone to your phone, there's no guaranteeing that that microphone's going to be in the good place to get good sound. Especially if you like hit that little zoom button on your phone, so you're getting a close up, so you're kind of far away from the subject. The mic on your camera is not necessarily going to get very good sound. It could get really bad sound. The, the biggest piece of advice that I try and give younger filmmakers, it is almost never I've, I'm on sets where the sound person isn't paid. Like I've worked on a bunch of really indie stuff where like everybody's coming out for free as a favor and the sound person's still getting paid. And the reason why is A, it's a skilled commodity, but B, it's like you need someone who can get a boom as close as possible to the actors without entering your frame. So like if you can find a hundred bucks to kick, to give to a sound person for the day and you can post on Craigslist or Mandy and find a sound person who'd come out for a hundred bucks a day to help out a kid. I would do that rather than buying a microphone because if you just buy a microphone and mount it to your phone, 99% of the time it's going to be in the wrong place. It's going to be too far from your subject. And no matter how good the mic is, if it's too far from its subject, it's just not going to sound like you want it to sound. If you really don't want to do that, then I would recommend like lavaliers on your actors over a mic on your phone. And so you'd get like something like the Rode Wireless Go 2 set, which everybody I know seems to love. Like multiple people I know have bought it in the last six months. Or DJI just came out with a similar competitor. Like the Rode Wireless Go 2 is probably your second best bet. You can plug that in your phone. People would wear wireless lavaliers. I think it comes with two lavaliers. So if you have two actors, you're set. So if you're like, I don't want to hire someone, I want to buy something, Rode, wireless go to. But your other question is like, how do I share it with the world? And it's like, well, you have to decide what you think you've made and how is best to share it. So like, if you think you've made something festival worthy and like go and watch some of the last couple of years of festival films and you can totally do it. And there are high school students who've gotten films into major festivals. And there was a, a 15 year old last year who did a feature with their friends and, and got it, you know, in a big festival and, and Ben Zetlin became a champion of it. So like maybe you do something great and it's festival worthy. If it's festival worthy, like put it through the festival circuit, like apply for the big festivals. If it's not, that doesn't mean you shouldn't still share it with the world on YouTube or in Vimeo and then post about it on Reddit in one of the forums on filmmaking and post about it in your socials and, and try and get attention and then make something else. And then you make something else and then you make something else and then you make something else. Yeah. Those are my thoughts, George, Gigi. Yeah. I'll, I'll quickly throw in a few. I congratulations on doing this and being bold and getting into it and writing your script. And yeah, it's just fun. I'm thinking of other stories when Charles talked about, when you talked about hiring one sound person, I was thinking about an early project in the old days of mine where the only person being paid was a sound guy we found on Craigslist and, (laughs) <laughs> the stories about that guy and that experience are probably not safe for podcasting, but it was an interesting oh learning process. That's for sure. And it was a long time ago, but anyway, yeah, be careful who you hire off Craigslist. But I, I do agree that hiring a sound person is, it makes sense because yeah, it's not a glory position in that it's going to be harder to, let's to put it nicely, say like convince your friends or people, you know, that there's a reason to do it besides for money with sound. It's like, you know, like some people will shoot stuff for free. Some people will do uh, act for free. Some people will do all number of things for free. But sound is like holding a boom and mixing. You know, it's it, the equipment costs money too. So mm-hmm. all that said, yes, get good sound. And additionally, you know, think of this 
project, as excited about it as you are, and as much, my, my biggest piece of advice for anybody, but especially like if you're young and starting out, like think of it as like, this is like project zero or 0.1 or 0.2. And just think that there's going to be lots. You're going to try to take as many swings at that as possible. This is one of many. Don't put all your eggs in this basket in the sense that like, you know, this is a, this is a learning growth field. And this is, you, you will learn things by doing this and approach it that way. Look for opportunities to be told what you did wrong or how to get better. Don't go into it thinking, I'm making my first feature. I'm, you know, this is my reservoir dogs. Go into it thinking like, I'm cutting my teeth. And, and if you keep that attitude and that mentality, event, no matter where you are, I think it serves you. I wish I knew that 20 years ago. But just in general, you know, this, this, take this as like, uh, I'm excited to get better through this experience. Mm-hmm. And hey, yeah, maybe this will be great. And maybe it'll take you places. But you, but don't think about that. Think really invest in this experience and process of learning and getting better and discovery while you're in the field and take notes about what you learned and saw and be open to criticisms and opportunities to get better. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And frankly, I'm jealous of this 15 year old knowing that they're excited about making film because it really is a skill that takes years to master. Um, and so you're already, you know, years ahead of me who started in my late twenties, but in addition to, you know, figuring out things like sound, because we often forget as new filmmakers that what we're making is sight and sound. And that's often the first mistake people make. I love this idea of taking the pressure off and going in with maybe one specific goal in this particular project. Do you want to focus on telling story that conveys something through a look? Um, What is the one thing you want to take away? And when I moved to LA and started doing sketchy work, my buddy (laughs) Ryan, (laughs) Ryan Thomas and I, who is a DP and who I've known since I was a kid, we would go into every single project with zero budget and one thing we wanted to try. So the first was we wanted to make something with four people talking in a room and we achieved it and we set the bar really low. And, and as long as we were checking that box, you know, working to the best of our ability. But as long as we were checking our box, that was a win for us. Our second project was we wanted to try shooting something at night. And, you know, through every single goal that we set up front, we were able to learn something new. And I think it made me so much better than when the project that I did before where we were full on like SAG actors and I put all this pressure on myself and didn't really work out. Um, And then I guess the final thing is maybe get a deal memo because (laughs) you never know. Good Good to start practicing that early on, sending an email to your friends and saying, reply to this and this is what it'll be. And as for where it can live, even with these sketchy sketch projects that I was doing, <laughs> my sketchy work, we made it so it could live on Instagram. We made them short so so they could get an audience. And uh, that was, I think, uh, a fun way to to get something out there because it's really easy for the a project that you envision to 
live in the festival circuit, it takes it takes about a year and a half to see it on the screen. And sometimes it's really fun to just get that immediate gratification. There's also a couple of venues like Channel 101, which accepts five-minute shorts. Um, and if you uh, get voted back for a second episode, it's another reason to make something because you have a deadline to come back next month. Um, so there's a lot of cool ways to get it out there that may be less traditional than, say, the short film festival circuit, but a great way to build an audience and get a reaction from people. Gigi, you reincorporated so many elements of today's episode in that summary. <laughs> and you also mentioned Channel 101, which I didn't realize you'd had time with, which I also had time with, which means we've oh. both done the same sketchy things in Los Angeles. <laughs> We're sketchy. I love it. I think that's All it. All righty, guys. <laughs> what a great episode of the No Film School podcast. All right, so I'm going to be gone next week because I'm going to be shooting. I might drop a YouTube video about what I'm shooting, so you can always check out my YouTube channel or my Twitter and my Instagram, all of which are Charles Zane, H-A-I-N-E. And I'll see you guys in a couple of weeks when I return. And I'll be back next week. Um, and you can find my work, including my sketchy work, on social media at Lost in Graceland. And I'm going to miss you, Charles, next week. And uh, I'll be back. I'm always here or mostly always here. And I'm George Edelman. <laughs> you've been no film school. Uh, you can email us questions like this amazing question we got today. It's so fun to hear from people and to talk about what they're doing. Email them to editor at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to check out all the things we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. Check us out on Instagram and YouTube. And thanks so much for listening. 